This episode of Blood Chitless is brought to you by The Game Steward. The Game Steward is an online game store offering Kickstarter board games, out-of-print games, and imported games at reasonable prices. It's time to play. Okay, on tonight's episode of Board Chitless, we are delighted to have Frank West from City of Kings on the show. So, uh, Frank West's description on Board Game Geek is very simple. Born in 1986, Frank West is a game designer based in Bristol, England. What are you meant to write for those things? I, like, <laughs> I spent ages looking at different people trying to work out what I was meant to say about myself. And I was like... I'll tell them how old I am and where I live and what my name is. You tick both those boxes then. So, I mean, it's very humble, Frank, you know, given the, given the success of your campaign and everything. Well, let's just get straight down into the questions anyway. Um, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. No worries. It's great um, to be here, Tristan. So, first of all, could you give us some background on your gaming interests, Frank, and what led you to, uh, to board game design in the first place? Yeah, of course. So I started as, I guess, a lot of people who are kind of, you know, late 20s, early 30s, playing a lot of video games when I was a kid. I grew up on video games. I went through all the various consoles from the kind of early Nintendos all the way up to the modern stuff. And I used to play a lot of consoles and I did a lot of online gaming. I played a lot of kind of MMORPGs. And then... One day, um, one of my friends kind of started introducing me to some board games. And I'd always, like, touched on board games in some way or another. You know, I'd played Risk quite a lot at university. Um, I did some Magic the Gathering for a while, which, like, I really enjoyed. But I never really knew about kind of the full modern kind of board gaming world. And then we started doing these kind of video game slash board game nights, which kind of alternated every week. So one week was video games, the next week was board games. And I was like, I'll go to that, I'll try it out. And we started playing some board games, and my goodness, did I get hooked quickly. I was like, this is everything I want in my life. <laughs> so I played a lot of board games with these people. I started to kind of get to play more and more games. My collection started to grow. And then it kind of dawned on me that I'd always been interested in like video game design. And for university, I did um, computer science, and I was playing around with video game design. And then I was like well, all these kind of video games that I wanted to kind of create, I can kind of do in board games. And I just found it really interesting because all of these mechanics I was learning through board games reminded me of video games. And that's kind of, I guess, where it started. I was like, how can I make this video game I've had in my head for the last five years actually a board game? And that was kind of the start of The City of Kings. Was there a specific inspiration for City of Kings then, like thematically? I think the kind of, the theme behind it and the world has just been something that I've been thinking about for years and years. Um, I played so many kind of video game RPGs that really the inspiration was just those kind of video game RPG kind of experiences. And the theme, I guess it kind of fell into itself, you know, I just started thinking about what kind of world would I want, what would I want to happen in this world, and just started writing stuff and it kind of all came together. I mean, mechanics-wise, there was a lot of games that inspired it, but I think the theme just kind of organically grew over all of that time. Yeah, do you have, like, a preferred type of uh, game mechanic, or what excites you most about games as a player? I, I'm one of these people who I enjoy, like, most games. So my collection is a massive range of games, from kind of small party games up to kind of, you know, big, big games. Um, I'm happy to play a game that takes five minutes, and I'm happy to play a game that takes kind of 16 hours. Um, <laughs> that's about my limit, you know, I, I like to sleep and not go overnight, but... Um, so 16 really, hours is your hard limit there yeah pretty much <laughs> unless I'm at a convention and I don't have to sleep then you know maybe we can roll over a day <laughs> but 
For me, I just like things which are kind of new and different. I like to play a lot of new games. I like to experience different types of mechanics. So I wouldn't say there's one mechanic that I specifically like enjoy the most, but I do enjoy when something's kind of new and original. Yeah. Do you have like a um, favorite game designers or what what are your favorite actual games themselves? I, I always find this one really hard. Um, I think I should start by saying I'm not one of these people who... Um, I, I don't pay much attention to like designers in a sense of if someone creates something, I don't automatically assume that I'm going to like everything else they create. Um, I've kind of... Coming from like the web background that I do and the kind of user experience background that I do, I always try and approach things with kind of a fresh mind. So I always try and treat people equally. And I think that's probably why I back too many projects on Kickstarter, <laughs> because I always assume everyone's a master and it doesn't always work out. But I mean, game wise, um, I'm a big fan of Eclipse. I play Eclipse um, quite a lot and I really do enjoy Eclipse. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy um, Innovation as kind of a two-player game, as like a smaller kind of experience. And I'm a big fan of things like Ultimate Werewolf. You know, I really like that kind of psychological kind of discussion and kind of deduction kind of side of things. Um, recently, I've been playing a lot of Feast for Odin and Terraforming Mars, and I very much enjoy both of those games, which are obviously slightly bigger kind of thinky games but as you can probably tell kind of it really does range and it really depends on my mood yeah there's a there's a broad selection there um, and i'm definitely with you on a few of those titles eclipse is one of my favorites i'd definitely give that a, a 10 oh, out cool. of 10 <laughs> we'll have to play that at some point <laughs> but yeah coming back to uh, to your specific story so let's talk a little bit about your kickstarter for a first time kickstarter city of kings was a staggering success pulling in um over two hundred eighty thousand pounds um, and this might surprise some people, but having talked to you, Frank, directly before the Kickstarter about your preparation and the time and the cash invested in the project, there's far more to your story, I feel, than it being an overnight accidental success on Kickstarter. Because in a nutshell, you really did your research. Could you talk to us more about how you did that and how you came to Kickstarter so prepared? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's always one of these difficult things. And I'm going to, like, you know, I could talk about this for hours and hours and not to kind of self-promote too much, but I'm going to start up a um, YouTube series to try and talk about this soon because there are so many different kind of individual points. And for me, um, I spent over a year, I mean, it's hard to know exactly how long, but it was somewhere between 12 and 24 months just researching Kickstarter and learning Kickstarter and learning the industry and the kind of the model and trying to understand what I needed to do and where I needed to do it. And what I kind of found over time is there's not obviously one thing that's going to make you successful. It all comes down to just trying lots and lots of different things and just being persistent and just kind of continuing to try different things. And what I mean by this is you don't want to just spam people. You don't want to just advertise to people and constantly be like, hey, my game, the City of Kings. Hey, my game, the City of Kings. You want to be more kind of just generally involved in the industry, generally involved in discussions. And then when the right moments come up, that's when you can kind of take that opportunity. So a really good example of this was um, just a couple of days ago on Reddit, someone made a post and they were talking about um, shipping on Kickstarters. And they were um, basically saying that, you know, they were unhappy with how people didn't clearly label the shipping countries and how their country, I think it was Croatia, um, isn't always included on the Kickstarter pages and stuff, even though it says it supports Europe. And I wrote a response to this basically explaining that, in my opinion, 
This is generally because Kickstarter creators just don't even know about all of the countries they need to include. Like, there are so many countries. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm not a master of geography. I had um, over 100 different countries visit my Kickstarter page. Wow. And I had backers from 64 countries. Now... I couldn't name 64 countries and, <laughs> you know, and I don't think it's because creators are um, being like, you know, rude or horrible or just ignoring you. It's literally because they just don't know about these countries. So I kind of wrote this and I basically said, you know, I was always happy for people to message me and say, I'm from country, blah, blah, blah. Can you do cheaper shipping? And generally I could. I just hadn't considered them beforehand. And I wrote this post and I didn't, you know, mention the City of Kings. I didn't talk about the City of Kings. I just tried to contribute information. And in response to that, someone came along and said, oh, you're the guy from the City of Kings, like, blah, 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 are you going to Gen Con? And then we ended up having this really public discussion about Gen Con and how it's going to be there. And at that point, it turned into more of a promotional piece. But the intent and the initial kind of interaction was about sharing and engaging the community and giving information. And I think that for me, that's kind of the core of how you be successful. You just spend time interacting, and when the right opportunities kind of arise, that's when you can kind of throw in the tidbits of the kind of advertising. So, like, ninja marketing? Very much, and it's, like... I'm very much, um, I'm a believer in kind of very subtle advertising. I'm a believer in not throwing your name down people's kind of throats. And I truly, I, I don't really know the terminology behind it because it's just like, it's just how I am with things. But I truly believe that you want to very subtly make people aware of your brand or your name or your kind of whatever it is you're trying to sell without ever kind of associating that to anything. So what I mean by that is there are a lot of places on the internet where I talked about the City of Kings or the City of Kings was brought up, but I never told people what it was. I never implied the City of Kings as a game, blah, blah, blah. I just, you know, dropped it into conversations, dropped it into sentences, kind of with that assumption that people knew what it was, even though I knew they didn't. But then it was always associated with kind of positive information. It was always associated with something which was um, good or kind of, you know, that was in like a positive light. So when I eventually got to the point where I started saying, hey, this is the City of Kings, it's a fantasy adventure board game, blah, 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 then people kind of recognised the name and they kind of only had kind of positive feelings, but they didn't really know anything about it. So it was kind of this like long-term plan of just slowly introducing people, getting people on board with kind of this concept and this idea before kind of ramming it down their throats. Yeah, so you'd almost pre-established your audience basically by, uh, as you say, subtly promoting it along the way. Exactly. And, you know, it's... It's hard. It's not like there's just, like, as I say, one single thing that can do it. But over time, it just kind of, it paid off. And as you say, like, you know, the Kickstarter campaign did really well. And we funded in three hours. And, you know, I was still going through my to-do list of things I need to do when we go live by the time we funded. <laughs> and I know, you know, there's a lot of Kickstarters out there that fund quickly. But we were asking for a lot of money no one knew who we were. We had never done anything before. We, you know, we're not in America. We don't travel to convention scene. Like, all of this stuff was against us. You know, we didn't have minis. We didn't have exclusives. We just went for the core concept of, here's what we believe is a good game, and we hope that you think it looks good, and this is what we're promising to do. And, you know, the, the kind of the core fundamentals of what I think Kickstarter games should be about. And... 
to fund in like three hours was just unbelievable and I, I truly don't know where all the people came from but <laughs> all I can believe is it's that silent majority that over all of that time we're just kind of seeing all of these messages and seeing all of these interactions and kind of being brought on board but never kind of engaging or interacting with that. You mentioned there the core fundamentals. Um, is there, I know there's not a magic bullet, but what sort of single hot tip would you give to first-time designers or publishers looking to use Kickstarter as a platform? Because obviously there's lots of people out there trying to get their games noticed and get the games published. Um, and it's a daunting prospect to approach, you know, to jump on Kickstarter and hit launch on your uh, on your project. What's sort terrifying, of... isn't it? And, <laughs> and even the launch button. Which one is the launch button? I mean, even that's not clear. You just look at the screen. You're like, is this going to launch my project? Or is this going to submit it to review for three days? <laughs> and you've told everyone you're going live at six o'clock and you've got no idea what button to press. I mean... <laughs> Well, that'd be a great tip to start with, wouldn't it? Like if we did a, a screenshot of the process so that people could see exactly when, you know, which button you press that sends it actually live. But um... So just for anyone who like isn't aware and isn't kind of familiar, um, Kickstarter, when you put a project on there before you go live, they basically tell you there's going to be a three-day kind of review process where they look over the project. But in recent times, my understanding is they've started to kind of automate that a bit. So whilst you used to have to kind of submit to it, now you kind of just get like ticked off straight away. But the buttons kind of aren't clear. And you look at this button and it kind of, it leads you to believe that pressing that button is going to submit you to the review process. But actually it's kind of, (laughs) that's the button that puts it live. And you look at it going like, I feel like this is going to put my project live. But it says that I need to submit it to review and you kind of, oh, I think everyone asks everyone every single time, like, is this the button? Is this the one I press? And it's, it's awful. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely one of the pitfalls to look out for with Kickstarter yes. specifically is um, knowing whether or not you've actually gone live, especially if you've set yourself up for a live launch. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Um, what what other pitfalls are there for um, designers and publishers on Kickstarter, do you think, to look out for? I think that people need to be honest. People need to just, you know, one of the things that made my project kind of successful was just the interaction I had with the community, the kind of the conversations and the fact that I just respond to everything. And whether it's positive or negative, I still take that time to kind of respond. And I think that one of the um, pitfalls people have is they, they just don't respond to things quickly. Like if you look at the comment section on our Kickstarter campaign, we had thousands and thousands of comments. We had so many people interacting and talking and discussing. And that's what brought in more backers. More people saw that interaction. They saw that positive kind of comments. And then you look at other Kickstarters, you know, and they have four comments and no one responds to them for like three days. And it's kind of like, well, you're not doing yourself any favors. Like responding to these things, you know, within five minutes or, you know, at least within the first day, is it's so important and you really do need to be doing that. And I think, like, there's there's so many little things. I mean, obviously your page, you know, it needs to look good. You don't need to have huge amounts of artwork. You don't need to have a completely finished game. But what you do need to have is something that looks good, something that looks professional. And even if you're just showing them, like, four pictures, make sure those four pictures look good. If you're going to have, you know, a 100 pieces of art in your game, but you've only paid for five of them, that's fine. You don't need to lie about it. You don't need to show here's 95 kind of hand-drawn things and here's the five final ones. Just kind of present it in a right way and just kind of be honest about that situation. 
Cool. Yeah, good tips there, I think. And so, I mean, how has the process gone for you in terms of Kickstarter as a whole and producing the game? Because you're in the middle, well, you're still in the process, right, of, of getting City yeah. of Kings produced. So um, what sort of lessons have you learned for future productions? What would you do differently if you would do anything differently? I think I would move my office and my house closer together because, <laughs> or move into my office entirely. I feel like one of those two things would certainly be the biggest difference. I mean, I think that, I mean, for me, my Kickstarter campaign, I spent a lot of time preparing and planning and everything that happens after that I've researched and I've got a strong understanding of how big kind of projects and products kind of come together. So there's not been anything that specifically surprised me or anything that's kind of tripped me up yet. I'm sure, you know, we've still got a long way to go because there could still be problems. But I think that one of the, um, one of the strangest things, I guess, which is something that I don't think anyone ever talks about, um, I, at least I've never heard anyone talk about it, is editing. Now, we all have rule books, we all have copy, and I, I mean, I'd love to know your experience of this, Tristan, but, like, just getting people to proofread and edit your kind of stuff just seems to be, like, the hardest thing on earth, because <laughs> I have had so many editors going through so many documents for me now, and yet every single one comes up with 500 new issues that the previous ones didn't come up with. Yeah. And it's just, like, I feel in my head, like you know, the English language, there's no black and white. There's just so much kind of blurriness that the editors just go back and forwards and it all comes down to personal preference and you have to get to a point where you just go, well, it's good enough. But I don't know, I mean, what's your experience of that being? Have you had kind of editors or anyone kind of working on your stuff? Absolutely, Frank. I think the the process of designing a game and writing the rules are two completely different art forms. And uh, I think this has been proven out by um, my first game, Landing Gloom of Killforth. Uh, I hired a professional editor, Patrick Brennan, from who now works for Fancy Flight, and gave him my shoddy version of the rule book. And um, he went through it with a fine tooth comb and closed all the gaps and all the, you know, the the errors and everything. And um, the result of that is that the rule book that we have now is comprehensive but wordy. So the there are people who get on with it and who recognise that it covers pretty much every outcome you could want. And then there are other people who are put off by it because it's too dense or it's too wordy. And so one way or the other, you're going to, with a semi-complex game like um, mine and like I'm assuming City of Kings is going to be, you're going to have people ask rules questions. There are going to be thousands of rules questions, even if it seems like the most obvious thing in the world to you. So the person who's playing the game, you know, who's blindly opening it for the first time, it's going to be an overwhelming experience trying to digest all of that. And it seems like part of it can be allayed by having a professional, like um, a watch it played type video, you know, to go through it for the people who don't get on with rule books. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to hand it over to an editor, a professional editor who's done it before, who's got lots of experience, and just put it into their hands and and trust for the best. I think if you bring on lots of different people, you're you're going to get loads and loads of different opinions, and you, and you you might find yourself chasing your tail a little bit, and or ended up with a hundred page rule book. At the end of the day, to complete these projects, you have to at some point draw a line under it and just say that's got all the rules in it. You know, if there are going to be problems, we can do an FAQ. You know, you're the kind of person, Frank, who's very interactive with the community, so you'll be on hand to you know, help field those kinds of questions as well. 
Um, but, you know, who am I to answer this? You know, I've got one game out there and uh, and uh, rules problems are, are, are part of the process, I think. So uh, I, d- I don't think there's any, you know, silver bullet answer to that question, unfortunately. You just have to make sure that you do the best that you can, give lots of player examples, lots of pictures and images to go with the rules to try and explain them and and, uh, and get it out, get it out to the players. You know, a lot of people won't want to look at the rules until they've got the game in front of them. But there is a, there's quite a few guys who will be willing to go through them, you know, before the game arrives and, and flag up things that are going to be unclear or uncertain. I think perhaps. that's one of the, I would say, you know, when you asked me if there'd been any surprises, I would actually say that's probably been the surprise that I wasn't expecting is the amount of people who want to read your rule book before they buy the game. Like, I know people do it, um, but I never imagined it would be so high. And to give you an example of this, um, when I was at UK Games Expo, I actually took a box of rule books with me. Um, the reason for this is when I did my prototype printing, I wanted to get my rule book printed. And the um, printers, I think they had a minimum order of 100. And I didn't need 100 rule books. I only needed four because I only had four copies of the game. And I was like, I'll take them to the Games Expo and I'll put them on the side. And then people who come over can read them and they've got questions. We can go through them and stuff. And we ran out. Like Seriously? Literally, the amount of people who came up and said, can we take a rule book? Can I take a rule book? It just blew my mind. Like, I I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously, like, it makes sense. You know, you're about to spend a lot of money on a game. You know, learning it beforehand and making sure you want to play that game makes sense. But I would never take a rule book from a stand at a convention. And it just, that really blew my mind, like, to a point where I think in the future... Like I will actively take a stack of rule books with me because they're not that expensive, and if people want them, then fantastic. You know that's a great way of getting your game in front of people. I think it's also um, a vote of confidence, Frank. If you've got the completely developed rule book or you know the the first pass at the rules in place already, then people are confident then that you've done the groundwork because I think a, a lot of people have been stung by backing games on Kickstarter, receiving them, playing them, and perhaps realizing that not everything's there, you know, or that the rules are rushed or, um, you know, haven't come together as well as they expected. And so people perhaps look for the rules being in place before they want to get on board with the game. And I think that's a, that's hugely important. So yeah, maybe you're on something there, get the rules out first, get people learning how to play the game completely before it arrives and you're spreading the word that way. It certainly feels like, um, again, another one of those little things that you can do because um, I put my first draft of my rule book out. I don't know how long ago. I mean, I'm going to say like a year. I don't think it was quite that long, but it was it was getting on for that. And the amount of people who have fed into that over time and the amount of people that have commented on it and interacted with it and maintained a communication, uh, you know, a channel of communication with me um, because of that and gone on to the back of the game... Um, I know when you put your rule book out there and you put stuff out there and no one knows who you are, it's heartless, you know, it's horrible because no one responds, you're ignored, but there's always people. And I think that, like, the first video um, I'm planning to do on my kind of Kickstarter series, um, other than the introduction, is going to be called um, Everyone Needs a Patrick. And what I mean by this is... 
I was posting for about six months on Board Game Geek in a work in progress thread and other various places and no one responded, no one cared, no one interacted and then this guy came along called Patrick and he asked a question and that was like the happiest day of my life. <laughs> you know, I was like, someone is paying attention to my game and they're asking a question and over the months he asked more and more questions and two years later he was one of the first backers of my game. Yeah. And that, you know, it didn't matter that it was one person. It doesn't matter if you've got a thousand people or a hundred thousand people. Just having one, having that one level of interaction and for me to be successful, you need to work out how you get your first Patrick, how you get your first stranger to come and interact with you. And, you know, chucking a rule book out there can be a good way to get a person to interact with you. These are your champions, Frank. These, this is what we're calling them for uh, Gloom exactly. and Kilforth, the guys who... You know, who've been there from day one, the guys who ask all the rules questions, who give you fair uh, but firm criticism, you know, and, and carry you through because you do need that support and you need that, um, you need those sounding boards to get the ideas and to get the rules straight and, and get the game into shape. But yeah, these are definitely the guys who are going to carry you through. Just going back to your point there about the rule book. So I guess that's sort of having the hundred rule books that there is almost like a, another marketing um, technique in itself. I know part of your marketing, well, almost the entirety of your marketing campaign prior to the Kickstarter was, as you've discussed earlier, about getting involved in the community and giving back. But obviously, once the campaign's underway, there are lots of avenues to get your marketing out there. And did you choose any of the traditional channels? Did you put any adverts on Board Game Geek or places like that? What's, how have you marketed your game once it's gone live? Um, yeah, when the Kickstarter launched, I did do some Board Game Geek adverts. Um, I played around with Facebook adverts, um, played around with Reddit adverts and Twitter adverts. But um, I found that the Board Game Geek one and um, the Facebook ones were kind of the main two. Um, Reddit brought in like a little bit. It wasn't huge amounts, but I'd already gotten a lot of... Um, like organic kind of backers through Reddit because there are a lot of posts about the game on there anyway. So the adverts were kind of a secondary thing. So um, Twitter, I would say, is kind of utterly pointless, um, <laughs> at least in my experience. Um, but yeah, Facebook and Board Game Geek, um, we did some, but I wouldn't say that we did crazy amounts and I wouldn't say we kind of did... We, we did it the way you're not meant to do it because, again, everything about my Kickstarter campaign was trying to break the rules, was trying to, you know, I'm an unknown guy, no one knows me, no one knows anything about this, I can't do it the traditional way. So I really took a lot of risks and I took a lot of gambling. So, for example, um, I did the kind of, the full kind of burst of Board Game Geek adverts um, during the first 48 hours of my campaign. Now, that's typically the wrong way to do it typically people you know pay for those adverts at the end of that campaign because they're the way to kind of you know you know that your campaign is doing well and therefore you can continue to grow on that and investing that money at the start is the wrong way to do it however um, I have a very good understanding of Kickstarter and, you know, as I'm sure you're aware as well, Kickstarter is all about momentum. It's all about, you know, once you've got those people on board, like letting it roll and letting it grow and letting those people spread the word. And I took that gamble. I said to myself, well, you know what? Not enough people know about the game. So... I need to, on day one, tell as many people as possible. And that's why I did that kind of burst at the start, to bring them in. The City of Kings, you know, it's a big kind of 
gamers game. So Board Game Geek is my core audience. So I guess I kind of did an unusual thing in that I kind of did that big burst of kind of advertising right at the start, which I don't recommend people do because it's hugely risky, but you know, it kind of paid off for us. Yeah, sort of front loading the campaign really. And then obviously you get the the 48 hour reminder gives a nice bump at the end of a Kickstarter campaign, yeah. especially if it's already funded. But how did you sort of top that as it were, you know, at the, at the tail end of the campaign there? So everything after that really was kind of pretty organic. Like we had a few little bits of adverts here or there, but I would say 90% of the money we spent on adverts was in that first 48 hours. Um, because I'm crazy and I say everything I did was completely against the traditional way. Um, One of the things that we also did um, was the live streams. So I did quite a few live streams during my campaign and we did something called the city, um, the internet plays the city of kings, which was both the kind of the best idea and the worst idea I've ever had. (laughs) And um, for anyone who didn't watch it, which I assume is the majority of people, um, I set up the game, and the City of Kings is a cooperative game, and I set up two characters, and I basically got the audience to do every single action of one of the characters. So every single turn, every single decision they had... um, I asked them to vote on what they wanted to do. And over the course of about four hours, I had 300 people discussing and planning and architecting this adventure through the game. (laughs) And we got to the end and it went very smoothly. But obviously it's hard, you know, it's really difficult because you've got to keep the game flowing. You've got to make it interesting. You're silent. There's no one else there with you. There's a delay on the internet and every single action and turn, you need to wait 20 seconds for them to respond. So it was really, really difficult. But we had the biggest boost of um, sales during our campaign on that day. Like we had huge amounts of people jump on board because they got to feel like they played the game. They got to feel like they experienced the game. And was this using Kickstarter Live or was this on Facebook Live? Um, So this one was actually on YouTube. Um, So um, I've set it up using YouTube and we did do a Kickstarter live stream as well. But the Kickstarter live stream was much more of a me walking through things and talking about things. So I kind of set up an overhead camera and was just showing everyone each piece and talking about the journey and the creation and answering every question they had. So that wasn't about playing. And that also gave us a really good boost. And I think that in future campaigns, I would probably plan to do something like that once a week. Wow. It's a big time investment, but obviously, like you say, it paid off if you got that sort of natural boost from the backers there. As um, I'm sure you know from backing campaigns, the hardest thing is to know whether or not you're going to enjoy the experience of playing that game. And doing the live streams allowed people to kind of experience playing the game in a way that you can't really do unless you physically have the game in front of you. And I know there's kind of digital playing and all of this, but it's it's still not giving you that kind of adventure. It's not giving you that experience. And as I'm sure you're familiar with kind of your conventions, you know, when you're sat at a table with a stranger teaching them your game, you know, there's such a connection. You can really bring them on board and you can help them understand it and you can see what they're liking and what they're not liking and you can address their concerns. And by the end of that experience, you know that they're going to get the genuine kind of overview of your game. 
And the live stream kind of allows you to do that with a thousand people at the same time. Yeah, there's, I mean, that can't be understated, the, that sort of one-on-one uh, contact with with the players there, like you say, at, at conventions. It's unbeatable, really, isn't it? Because you can, that's where you can pitch directly and, you know, get it into the minds, your idea of the game and everything. Did you use video reviewers of your games? Yeah, so again, um, I took the kind of, the wrong approach to this, but the right approach for me. So... Um, there's a few different ways of handling reviewers and previewers, and I think the common approach is to contact lots of people and to you know make sev- like as many prototypes as you can afford to do, and to then ship them out and hope that some of them do videos. Um, that seems to be like the standard for a lot of people who are new into the industry. Um, for me, I printed two copies and contacted two people and based my entire campaign success around those two people (laughs) doing it, Um, (laughs) which was a little bit scary. But at the same time, I'd spent 12 months like building a relationship with those people to make sure that I was confident it was going to happen. So of which those two people were Man vs. Meeple and Rado. And Man vs. Meeple I chose because they are what I would consider the best in the industry at visually showing beautiful games. And Rado I chose because I believe he's the best in the industry at teaching people a game through playing the game and sharing that experience. And I felt that through Rado showing the game and Man vs. Meeple kind of showing the artwork and the kind of the beauty of the game, that gave me both sides of the coin. And I didn't need anyone else. And I focused on producing two very high quality prototypes. The prototypes of the City of Kings cost nearly £500 each. Wow. So they were very, very expensive. Um, And so I took that gamble. And rather than printing, you know, lots of them for kind of cheap, um, I went that way. And again, it's all about kind of having a plan, you know, to saying to yourself, what is it that I need to have happen? Give yourself plenty of time, make that plan, and then see if it works. And if it doesn't, give yourself time to adapt to it. Absolutely. And these guys, of course, have these huge established audiences that you're tapping into straight away with with, uh, by sending those copies to them directly and i think that our like for example with rado um the video that he did the run through of our game was like the most viewed video of like any game he had had for about four months other than um oh, i don't know which one it was there's was one other big game that was kind of above it but you know how many videos he puts out there and it just shows that no one knew what this game was and everyone wanted to know because there was so much buzz going around it and having him as that kind of that core channel to send people to just really kind of you know lit us up the next question is going to sound loaded frank because <laughs> to uh, to non kickstarter designers it's uh, it's different context entirely but what are your thoughts on kickstarter as a platform for developing new games i mean you'd have, you'd have to be a little bit objective and zoom out a bit here is it a good thing for the industry is it yeah i think that kickstarter is a good thing in the industry um is it but... something you'll always use do you think frank well i guess just before i answer that i would say that um i wish there were other options um i don't think that kickstarter being the only good option is good for the industry um and i feel like there is a lot of kind of underworkings with kickstarter that a lot of people kind of aren't aware of kind of publicly and it feels like um 
as with a lot of the kind of community, um, board gaming is, you know, the board game community and industry, there's a lot of about who you know and how you know them. And that's fine, you know, it's great that we kind of have such a kind of community kind of driven thing. But I feel that Kickstarter kind of brings that on board a little bit. And I feel that it's very unfair for a lot of new creators and a lot of new people that they kind of because they're not in the industry, it kind of gives them that disadvantage over some of the other companies and people that have been around for a longer time. So that said, you know, I do like Kickstarter and I do think it's good, but I feel like having competition would be good. And unfortunately, Indiegogo and the other kind of competitors just aren't at that level where they can compete yet. Yeah, agreed. And also... Within Kickstarter, it's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, I don't know about your stats there, Frank, but a lot of uh, backers come from Kickstarter itself, you know, from searching through tabletop games and everything. So, yeah, it's sort of... Um, it, it could do with some more competition. <laughs> and I think there's much to be said about the user interface as well, but that's a whole different yeah, story. completely. <laughs> and that's the problem. No competition means that there's no requirement for them to do a better job. And whilst they are improving it you know, competition would help them improve it more and for us all to kind of benefit from that. Yeah, keep them on the toes. So can you tell us anything about, uh, it might be a little too early to say, but forthcoming games and future projects? I know you're obviously deep in the development of City of Kings at the moment, but what's what's the future hold for Frank West? So actually, um, what's really interesting is as of um, tomorrow, the last file for the City of Kings will be at the printers and as of Monday next week I will be working full time on the next game outside of managing shipping. Awesome. That's pretty exciting that's um, you know the biggest highlight of my life pretty much because suddenly I can sleep again and start working on something new and exciting and like there are so many ideas and so many games and I've made so many prototypes over the last kind of um, year and year and a half um, of all these different games and I'm pretty kind of solid on what the next one's going to be but you know it still could change because now it's got a transition from a prototype that I enjoy to a game that I think the world wants and that's um, you know a big ask it's kind of you know, when you have to make that decision between am I designing a game that I want or am I designing a game that I want and other people want? And I feel that now this is my second game and I want this to become my career. I need to think slightly more about kind of what other people would enjoy as well as myself. As the City of Kings really was just the game I wanted. And luckily other people wanted it too. <laughs> well, you mentioned there you want this to be your full-time career. Do you, do you have a job outside board gaming? Um, no, so I, again, um, and I'm going to put a huge disclaimer out there on this one, I do not recommend this to anyone else, but part of my um, craziness of planning for my Kickstarter was I quit my job the month before my campaign went live so I could work on it full time. Wow. Um, so that was a bit of a gamble. And when I say quit my job, I mean um, I ran a company um and had some very large clients and it was a very successful company and I shut down the company and got rid of all of my clients. So in some ways it wasn't just quitting a job but kind of throwing away everything I'd spent the last 10 years building. (laughs) So, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty crazy to a point where if my Kickstarter had failed, um, 
I possibly was gonna be moving into my parents' house with my girlfriend because we wouldn't have afforded the rent. So, you know, there was a big kind of undertaking, but that does mean that now I can officially say that I'm a full-time board game designer and publisher, which is super exciting and scary because this next game actually has to be good. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't to say that the first game isn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> that's a, that's an incredible story, bad. Frank. That's a, a real representation of fortune favouring the bold there. But um, I'd probably reiterate your point there that it's not, it's not the advice you'd like to give out to everybody no, to uh, go quit the jobs and jump in on Kickstarter. But I think um, I don't want to avoid your question about the next game. So um, in regards to the next game, for me... Um, I take a lot of my inspiration from Blizzard, who are a big video game company. And Blizzard are the creators of Warcraft, Starcraft and Diablo and um, and other things. And I'm very much of the mindset that I want to create a series of IPs and to create a series of games and books and other such things within each of those IPs. So The City of Kings to me is not a board game. The City of Kings to me is, you know, it's Lord of the Rings, it's Star Wars, it's Warcraft. When you say those things, they're not a book, a film, a game, a story. They're just the combination of a world that's made up with these things. So for me, my next um, game, and I believe the next game after that, but it's not set in stone, will all be within the City of Kings universe. And then the next game after that will introduce a second IP, and at that point, we'll be alternating games back and forwards between those two IPs. And hopefully, should we get to a point where it goes well, we could introduce a third one. But for me, um, all of the games are going to be built within this universe. And that's why we spent so much time writing stories and kind of doing artwork for the world as well as just the game. And whilst The City of Kings is about this kind of destroyed world. So the City of Kings, everything's been kind of destroyed, everyone's been killed, a few people have survived, and they've retreated back to the City of Kings. And it tells the story of you kind of fighting your way back out, trying to reclaim the world. So the next game that we're working on, which um, I'm not gonna talk about the name of it yet, but we'll refer to it as the code name Invasion. And the next game is basically set five years before. And it's at the point in time where Vesh, who is the kind of the dark sorcerer who created all of this evil, unleashes his creatures on the world. And you'll actually play as the bad guys in this one. And it's at the point where you go out and destroy everything. So our next game is kind of um, a prequel in a sense to kind of show you how everyone got to the state that our current game is in. Cool, but it's all but all ties into the same world, the same universe. Exactly, well. but you'll be the bad guys rather than the good guys as well because I really want to kind of tell both sides of the story. Cool, sounds really interesting. Best of luck with all of your projects and with the fulfillment of City of Kings. Um, I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show tonight. I really appreciate your time and your insights and I think you've done an absolutely amazing job on, on pulling the City of Kings together the way that you did on Kickstarter and really excited to see the game in its final form. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe in a future show we'll get you back and you can talk about Invasion or whatever the, the title may be and uh, also tell us a little bit, you know, about how City of Kings finally went in after the fulfillment process and everything. No, that would be great. But once again, Frank, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for having me. It's been great here um, chatting with you, Tristan. Thank you.